Chapter 30, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Stuckey. Chapter 30, Revolt of the Goths, Part 3. When Stilicho seemed to abandon his sovereign in the unguarded palace of Milan, he had probably calculated the term of his absence, the distance of the enemy, and the obstacles that might retard their march. He principally depended on the rivers of Italy, the Adige, the Menesius, the Oglio, and the Adua, which, in the winter or spring, by the fall of rains, or by the melting of the snows, are commonly swelled into broad and impetuous torrents. But the season happened to be remarkably dry, and the Goths could traverse without impediment the wide and stony beds, whose center was faintly marked by the course of a shallow stream. The bridge and passage of the Attawa were secured by a strong detachment of Gothic army, and as Alaric approached the walls, or rather the suburbs of Milan, he enjoyed the proud satisfaction of seeing the emperor of the Romans fly before him. Honorius, accompanied by a feeble train of statesmen and eunuchs, hastily retreated toward the Alps, with the design of securing his person in the city of Arlai, which had often been the royal residence of his predecessors. But Honorius had scarcely passed the Po before he was overtaken by the speed of the Gothic cavalry. Since the urgency of the danger compelled him to seek a temporary shelter within the fortifications of Asta, a town of Liguria or Piemont, situated on the banks of the Tenaris, the siege of an obscure place, which contained so rich a prize, and seemed incapable of long resistance, was instantly formed, and indefatigably pressed, by the king of the Goths and the bold declaration which the emperor might afterwards make that his breast had never been susceptible of fear did not probably obtain much credit even in his own court in the last and almost hopeless extremity after the barbarians had already proposed the indignity of a capitulation the imperial captive was suddenly relieved by the fame the approach and at length the presence of the hero whom he had so long expected at the head of a chosen and intrepid vanguard, Stilicho swam the stream of the Adua to gain the time which he must have lost in the attack of the bridge. The passage of the Po was an enterprise of much less hazard and difficulty, and the successful action in which he cut his way through the Gothic camps under the walls of Asta revived the hopes and vindicated the honor of Rome. Instead of grasping the fruits of his victory, the barbarian was gradually invested on every side by the troops of the West, who successively issued through all the passes of the Alps. His quarters were straightened, his convoys were intercepted, and the vigilance of the Romans prepared to form a chain of fortifications and to besiege the lines of the besiegers. A military council was assembled of the long-haired chiefs of the Gothic nation, of aged warriors whose bodies were wrapped in furs and whose stern countenances were marked with honorable wounds. They weighed the glory of persisting in their attempt against the advantage of securing their plunder and they recommended the prudent measure of a seasonable retreat. In this important debate, Alaric displayed the spirit of the conqueror of Rome, and after he had reminded his countrymen of their achievements and of their designs, he concluded his animating speech by the solemn and positive assurance that he was resolved to find in Italy either a kingdom or a grave. The loose discipline of the barbarians always exposed them to the danger of a surprise, but instead of choosing the desolate hours of riot and intemperance, Stilicho resolved to attack the Christian Goths whilst they were devoutly employed in celebrating the festival of Easter. 
The execution of the stratagem, or as it was termed by the clergy of the sacrilege, was entrusted to Saul, a barbarian and a pagan, who had served, however, with distinguished reputation among the veteran generals of Theodosius. The camp of the Goths, which Alaric had pitched in the neighborhood of Palentia, was thrown into confusion by the sudden and impetuous charge of the imperial cavalry, but in a few moments the undaunted genius of their leader gave them an order and a field of battle and as soon as they had recovered from their astonishment the pious confidence that the god of the christians would assert their cause added new strength to their native valor in this engagement which was long maintained with equal courage and success the chief of the alani whose diminutive and savage form concealed a magnanimous soul approved his suspected loyalty by the zeal with which he fought and fell in the service of the republic and the fame of this gallant barbarian has been imperfectly preserved in the verses of claudian since the poet who celebrates his virtue has omitted the mention of his name his death was followed by the flight and dismay of the squadrons which he commanded and the defeat of the wing of cavalry might have declared the victory of alaric if stilicho had not immediately led the roman and barbarian infantry to the attack the skill of the general and the bravery of the soldiers surmounted every obstacle in the evening of the bloody day the goths retreated from the field of battle the entrenchments of their camps were forced and the scene of the rapine and slaughter made some atonement for the calamities which they had inflicted on the subjects of the empire the magnificent spoils of corinth and argos enriched the veterans of the west the captive wife of alaric who had impatiently claimed his promise of roman jewels and patrician handmaids was reduced to implore the mercy of the insulting foe and many thousand prisoners released from the gothic chains dispersed through the provinces of italy the praises of their heroic deliverer the triumph of stilicho was compared by the poet and perhaps by the public to that of marius who in the same part of italy had encountered and destroyed another army of northern barbarians the huge bones and the empty helmets of the cambri of the goths would easily be confounded by succeeding generations and posterity might erect a common trophy to the memory of the two most illustrious generals who had vanquished on the same memorial ground the two most formidable enemies of rome the eloquence of claudian had celebrated with lavish applause the victory of palentia one of the most glorious days in the life of his patron but his reluctant and partial muse bestows more genuine praise on the character of the gothic king his name is indeed branded with the reproachable epithets of pirate and robber to which the conquerors of every age are so justly entitled but the poet of stilicho is compelled to acknowledge that alaric possessed the invincible temper of mind which rises superior to every misfortune and derives new resource from adversary after the total defeat of his infantry he escaped or rather withdrew from the field of battle with the greatest part of his cavalry entire and unbroken without wasting a moment to lament the irreparable loss of so many brave companions he left his victorious enemy to bind and change the captive images of a gothic king and boldly resolved to break through the unguarded passes of the apennine to spread desolation over the fruitful face of tuscany and to conquer or die before the gates of rome the capital was saved by the active and incessant diligence of stilicho but he respected the despair of his enemy and instead of committing the fate of the republic to the chance of another battle he proposed to purchase the absence of the barbarians the spirit of alaric would have rejected such terms the permission of a retreat and the offer of a pension with contempt and indignation but he exercised a limited and precarious authority over the independent chieftains who had raised him for their service above the ranks of his equals they were still less disposed to follow an unsuccessful general and many of them were tempted to consult their interests by a private negotiation with the ministers of honorius 
the king submitted to the voice of his people, ratified the treaty with the Empire of the West, and repassed the Po with the remains of the flourishing army which he had led into Italy. A considerable part of the Roman forces still continued to attend his motions, and Stilicho, who maintained a secret correspondence with some of the barbarian chiefs, was punctually appraised of the designs that were formed in the camps and councils of Alaric. The king of the Goths, ambitious to signalize his retreat by some splendid achievement, had resolved to occupy the important city of Verona, which commands the principal passages of the Raetian Alps, and, directing his march through the territories of those German tribes whose allegiance would restore his exhausted strength to invade on the side of the Rhine, the wealthy and unsuspecting provinces of Gaul. Ignorant of the treason which had already betrayed his bold and judicious enterprise, he advanced toward the passes of the mountains already possessed by the imperial troops, where he was exposed, almost at the same instant, to a general attack in the front, on his flanks, and in the rear. In this bloody action, at a small distance from the walls of Verona, the loss of the Goths was not less heavy than that which they had sustained in the defeat of Palentia, and their valiant king, who escaped by the swiftness of his horse, must either have been slain or made prisoner, if the hasty rashness of the Alani had not disappointed the measures of the Roman general. Alaric secured the remains of his army on the adjacent rocks, and prepared himself with undaunted resolution to maintain a siege against the superior numbers of the enemy, who invested him on all sides. But he could not oppose the destructive progress of hunger and disease, nor was it possible for him to check the continual desertion of his impatient and capricious barbarians. In this extremity he still found resources in his own courage, or in the moderation of his adversary and the retreat of the Gothic king was considered as the deliverance of Italy. Yet the people, and even the clergy, incapable of forming any rational judgment of the business of peace and war, presumed to arrange the policy of Stilicho, who so often vanquished, so often surrounded, and so often dismissed the implacable enemy of the Republic. The first moment of the public safety is devoted to gratitude and joy, but the second is diligently occupied by envy and calumny. The citizens of Rome had been astonished by the approach of Alaric, and the diligence with which they had labored to restore the walls of the capital confessed their own fears and the decline of the empire. After the retreat of the barbarians, Honorius was directed to accept the dutiful invitation of the Senate and to celebrate in the imperial city the auspicious era of the Gothic victory and his sixth consulship. The suburbs and the streets from which the Milvian Bridge and the Palatine Mount were filled by the Roman people, who in the space of a hundred years had only thrice honored with the presence of their sovereigns, while their eyes were fixed on the chariot where Stilicho was deservedly seated by the side of his royal pupil. They applauded the pomp of the triumph, which was not stained like that of Constantine or of Theodosius with civil blood. The procession passed under the lofty arch which had been purposely erected, but in less than seven years the Gothic conquerors of Rome might read, if they were able to read, the superb inscription of that monument which attested the total defeat and destruction of their nation. The emperor resided several months in the capital, and every part of his behavior was regulated with care to conciliate the affection of the clergy, the senate, and the people of Rome. The clergy was edified by his frequent visits and liberal gifts to the shrines of the apostles. The senate, who, in the triumphal procession, had been excused from the humiliating ceremony of proceeding on foot the imperial chariot, was treated with the decent reverence which Stilicho always affected for that assembly. The people was regularly gratified by the attention and the courtesy of Honorius in the public games, which were celebrated on that occasion with a magnificence not unworthy of the spectator. As soon as the appointed number of chariot races was concluded and the decoration of the circus was suddenly changed, 
The hunting of wild beasts afforded a various and splendid entertainment, and the chase was succeeded by a military dance, which seems, in the lively description of Claudian, to represent the image of a modern tournament. In these games of Honorius, the inhuman combats of gladiators polluted, for the last time, the amphitheater of Rome. The first Christian emperor may claim the honor of the first edict which condemned the art and amusement of shedding human blood. But this benevolent law expressed the wishes of the prince, without reforming an inveterate abuse which degraded a civilized nation below the condition of savage cannibals. Several hundred, perhaps several thousand victims were annually slaughtered in the great cities of the empire, and the month of December, more peculiarly devoted to the combats of gladiators, still exhibited to the eyes of the Roman people a grateful spectacle of blood and cruelty. Amidst the general joy of the victory of Palentia, a Christian poet exhorted the emperor to extirpate by his authority the horrid custom which had so long resisted the voice of humanity and religion. The pathetic representations of Prudentius were less effectual than the generous boldness of Telemachus, an ascetic monk whose death was more useful to mankind than his life. The Romans were provoked by the interruption of their pleasures, and the rash monk who had descended into the arena to separate the gladiators was overwhelmed under a shower of stones. But the madness of the people soon subsided, and they respected the memory of Telemachus, who had deserved the honors of martyrdom, and they submitted, without a murmur, to the laws of Honorius, which abolished forever the human sacrifices of the amphitheater. The citizens who adhered to the manners of their ancestors might perhaps insinuate that the last remains of a martial spirit were preserved in this school of fortitude, which accustomed the Romans to the sight of blood and to the contempt of death. A vain and cruel prejudice, so nobly confuted by the valor of ancient Greece and of modern Europe. The recent danger to which the person of the emperor had been exposed in the defenseless palace of Milan urged him to seek a retreat in some inaccessible fortress of Italy, where he might securely remain while the open country was covered by the deluge of barbarians. On the coast of the Adriatic, about ten or twelve miles from the most southern of the seven mouths of the Po, the Thessalians had founded the ancient colony of Ravenna, which they had afterwards resigned to the natives of Umbria. Augustus, who had observed the opportunity of the place, prepared at the distance of three miles from the old town, a capacious harbor for the reception of 250 ships of war. This naval establishment, which included the arsenals and magazines, the barracks of the troops, and the houses of the artificers, derived its origin and name from the permanent station of the Roman fleet. The intermediate space was soon filled with buildings and inhabitants, and the three extensive and populous quarters of Ravenna gradually contributed to form one of the most important cities of Italy. The principal canal of Augustus poured a copious stream of the waters of the Po through the midst of the city, and the entrance of the harbor. The same waters were introduced into the profound ditches that encompassed the walls. They were distributed by a thousand subordinate canals into every part of the city, which they divided into a variety of small islands. The communication was maintained only by the use of boats and bridges, and the houses of Ravenna, whose appearance may be compared to that of Venice, were raised on a foundation of wooden piles. The adjacent country, to the distance of many miles, was a deep and impassable morass, and the artificial causeway, which connected Ravenna with the continent, might be easily guarded or destroyed on the approach of a hostile army. These morasses were interspersed, however, with vineyards, and though the soil was exhausted by four or five crops, the town enjoyed a more plentiful supply of wine than of fresh water. The air, 
instead of receiving the sickly and almost pestilential exaltations of low and marshy grounds, was distinguished like the neighborhood of Alexandria, as uncommonly pure and salubrious, and this singular advantage was ascribed to the regular tides of the Adriatic, which swept the canals, interrupted the unwholesome stagnation of the waters, and floated every day the vessels of the adjacent country into the heart of Ravenna. The gradual retreat of the sea has left the modern city at the distance of four miles from the Adriatic, and as early as the fifth or sixth century of the Christian era, the port of Augustus was converted into the pleasant orchards and the lonely grove of pines covered the ground where the Roman fleet once rode at anchor. Even this alteration contributed to increase the natural strength of the place, and the shallowness of the water was a sufficient barrier against the large ships of the enemy. This advantageous situation was fortified by art and labor in the twelfth year of his age. The emperor of the West, anxious only for his personal safety, retired to the perpetual confinement of the walls and morasses of Ravenna. The example of Honorius was imitated by his feeble successors. The Gothic kings, and afterwards the exarchs, who occupied the throne and palace of the emperor, until the middle of the 8th century, Ravenna was considered as the seat of government and the capital of Italy. The fears of Honorius were not without foundation, nor were his precautions without effect. While Italy rejoiced in her deliverance from the Goths, a furious tempest was excited among the nations of Germany, who yielded to the irresistible impulse that appears to have been gradually communicated from the eastern extremity of the continent of Asia. The Chinese annals, as they have been interpreted by the earned industry of the present age, may be usefully applied to reveal the secret and remote causes of the fall of the Roman Empire. The extensive territory to the north of the Great Wall was possessed after the flight of the Huns by the victorious Sinpai, who were sometimes broken into independent tribes, and sometimes reunited under a supreme chief, till, at length, styling themselves the Topa, or masters of the earth, they acquired a more solid consistence and a more formidable power. The Topa soon compelled the pastoral nations of the eastern desert to acknowledge the superiority of their arm. They invaded China in a period of weakness and intestine discord, and these fortunate Tartars, adopting the laws and manners of the vanquished people, founded an imperial dynasty which reigned nearly 160 years over the northern provinces of the monarchy. Some generations before they ascended the throne of China, one of the Topa princes had enlisted his cavalry, a slave of the name of Moko, renowned for his valor, but who was tempted by the fear of punishment to desert his standard and deranged the desert at the head of a hundred followers. This gang of robbers and outlaws swelled into a camp, a tribe, a numerous people, distinguished by the appellation of Jiadin and their hereditary chieftains. The posterity of Moko the slave assumed the rank among the Scythian monarchs. The youth of Tulan, the greatest of his descendants, was exercised by those misfortunes which are the school of heroes. He bravely struggled with adversity, broke the imperious yoke of the Topa, and became the legislator of his nation and the conqueror of Tartary. His troops were distributed into regular bands of a hundred and of a thousand men. Cowards were stoned to death. The most splendid honors were proposed as a reward for valor, and Toulon, who had knowledge enough to despise the learning of China, adopted only such arts and institutions as were favorable to the military spirit of his government. His tents, which he removed in the winter season to a more southern latitude, were pitched during the summer on the fruitful banks of the Selinga. His conquest stretched from Korea, far beyond the river Irtish. He vanquished in the country to the north of the Caspian Sea the nation of the Huns, and the new title of Khan, or Kagan, expressed the fame and power which he derived from this memorable victory. The chain of events is interrupted, 
or rather is concealed as it passes from the Volga to the Vistula, through the dark interval which separates the extreme limits of the Chinese and of the Roman geography. Yet the temper of the barbarians and the experience of successive immigrations sufficiently declared that the Huns, who were oppressed by the arms of Jadon, soon withdrew from the presence of an insulting victor. The countries toward the Exine were already occupied by their kindred tribes, and their hasty flight, which they soon converted into a bold attack, would more naturally be directed toward the rich and level plains, through which the Vistula gently flows into the Baltic Sea. The North must again have been alarmed and agitated by the invasion of the Huns, and the nations who retreated before them must have pressed with incumbent weight on the confines of Germany. The inhabitants of those regions, which the ancients have assigned to the Suvi and the Vandals and the Burgundians, might have embraced the resolution of abandoning the fugitives of Sarmatia, their woods, and their morasses, or at least of discharging their superfluous numbers on the provinces of the Roman Empire. About four years after the victorious Talon had assumed the title of Khan and of Giotin, another barbarian, the haughty Rodegast, or Ragastus, marched from the northern extremities of Germany almost to the gates of Rome, and left the remains of his army to achieve the destruction of the West. The Vandals, the Suvi, and the Burgundians formed the strength of this mighty host, but the Alani, who had found a hospitable reception in their new seats, added their active cavalry to the heavy infantry of the Germans, and the Gothic adventurers crowded so eagerly to the standard of Radagatius that by some historians he has been styled the king of the Goths. Twelve thousand warriors, distinguished above the vulgar by their noble birth or by their valiant deeds, glittered in the van, and the whole multitude, which was not less than two hundred thousand fighting men, might be increased by the accession of women and children and of slaves to the amount of 400,000 persons. This formidable immigration issued from the same coast of the Baltic, which had poured forth the myriads of the Cimbri and the Teutons to assault Rome and Italy in the vigor of the Republic. After the departure of those barbarians, their native country, which was marked by the vestiges of their greatness, long ramparts and gigantic moles, remained some ages of vast and dreary solitude, till the human species was renewed by the powers of generation, and the vacancy was filled by the influx of new inhabitants. The nations who now usurp an extent of land which they are unable to cultivate, would soon be assisted by the industrious poverty of their neighbors if the government of Europe did not protect the claims of dominion and property. End of chapter 30, part 3. Recording by Jeff Stuckey of Atlanta, Georgia. Further information concerning Jeff Stuckey can be found by visiting jeffstuckey.com.